All right, let's pray. God, um, we do just honor you this morning. Pray that you would slow us down. In this society and just in life, we can get caught up of just rushing. Even if it's just eating dinner, we rush. Getting home from church, we rush. And what I'm thankful for, Father, is I just know in heaven that there's no rushing. It's just lingering in your presence. And I pray that we would be people that practice to linger like what's going on in heaven right now. Pray that today you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts with fertile soil, minds to comprehend, feet that want to run with obedience. Father, I pray that as as we talk about a much debated subject within the church, and I know there's even people in here that would agree and disagree, Father, that we would have hearts that are um, unoffendable and we would not divide over it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it was a good idea. It was just too late for me, and I, it was a great idea when I saw it. Um, Dave Gaylor suggested that for today's sermon that I have a bunch of clothes just spread out throughout the whole stage and altar area, and I thought it would be... Maybe we could, like, fish line some that are, like, floating up. And you're like, who was that? Lloyd Kurtz. Lloyd Kurtz is not here today, and he's the only one that got raptured. (laughs) Where's he at? So today, um, we are going to discuss the rapture. As you guys saw in, um, in the Remind, the Remind app here at the church is where we just send out prayer requests, um, information. If you're not connected with the Remind app, talk to a leader, you can talk to Mark, myself, and um, it'll send you information via text message or the app. Nevertheless, we are going to be talking about the, um, the rapture today, and I have nine books of a book um, that I've studied that uh, if you guys are interested, I'm not looking for an argument today, I'm not looking to divide the church today. But I do have a book that has more information. And, and as I studied this week, I did feel the presence of God as I studied. Um, one of the things that um, towards the end of the week, in the past couple weeks, that began to frustrate me was this. Is I said, I like learning this, but this feels so non-important to what the main thing is. And there's people who have spent their lifetime and are still spending their lifetime on understanding the rapture. And here's the thing, the rapture, teaching the rapture does not save you. Amen? Your interpretation of the rapture does not save you. Amen? Jesus and the blood of Jesus and faith in Jesus is what saves you. So, I have a book that I have read and continually reading and... um, Look, it carries my perspective. I agreed with much of what the book said, so I felt the anointing on it, right? Some of y'all might not feel the anointing on it, which is okay. But I have nine of those. Thirteen bucks today, you can have it. And I say that because there's, as I was preparing, you know, historically, there's liberties, like this is a liberty right now. 
there's liberties within my sermon that I take just to flow with it. So this is a liberty, but typically my sermons will be 1,800 words to 2,400 words, and I know where that's going to land me with my liberties for the teaching. Well, it was, it was Wednesday, and I had 6,000 words, right? I'm serious, 6,000 words, and I told Macy, the issue this week is not getting enough words. The issue this week is being able to take the vast opinions and all the scriptures and taking it into being clear and concise and limiting the words. So I say that and I say, I would encourage all of you guys, and I know there's only nine, all of you guys to buy the book today, nine books. I'll have them up here after service. 13 bucks, it can, you can have it. If you're like, I only have a 10, well, you can give 10 and you can owe us later. So um, if you have more questions, read this book before you accuse, before you get frustrated, read this book. That's a uh, guy that I really trust. Nevertheless, um, before we get into it, I want to do a little bit more prefacing uh, a few things. I preach today's message with great caution, but I know that people have their view of tribulation pretty close to as important as the gospel. There's some people who are in this room that have the gospel and they have the tribulation, and I don't say that joking. There's some people that all they ever want to talk about is tribulation and the rapture. And I'd much rather hear about the gospel and Jesus than I do tribulation and rapture. So I share today's message, not pointing a finger, not accusing anyone, but with great caution. Uh, Revelation 6 starts the period that most, if not all, believers seem to be afraid of. Tribulation. We're not going to be in Revelation chapter 6 today. But we're beginning to start this tribulation period. There are many people that believe that the rapture will come before this tribulation. So those pre-tribbers are not afraid of tribulation. There are many perspectives on the rapture, and I will touch on a few today. I will also share with you where I lean. And I say where I lean because this is not a doctrine that I will die on. The doctrine that I will die on is Jesus as the only way, that a sin is a sin, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, amen, that he was born of virgin birth, that his word is inerrant. Those are the doctrines that I'm willing to die on. There's people who are way smarter than me that think somewhat different than me. Um, yeah. If you and I do not agree, if we do not have the same opinion, it doesn't mean that we are not saved, and it doesn't um, mean that the rest of our doctrine is bad. Amen? Do you guys agree to that? This is your verbal wa waiver today, that you're not leaving the church. So, <laughs> if you don't agree to that, leave right now. All right, we, we agreed to that. Isn't it interesting how apps and social media does that? You have 30 seconds to agree and whatever. So it doesn't mean our doctrine is bad. Number four, your interpretation of the rapture is not a salvation issue. Number five, we should not hold so tightly to our uh, perspective that we allow it to divide the church or each other. And then the last one, if we are grafted into Christ, everything works out in the end. Amen? 
So the rapture, which is never used in the Bible. See, typically the church thinks that they hear the rapture, they've heard the rapture enough that if you type in in the concordance the word rapture, that it'll pop up somewhere. Well, it doesn't. Rapture is not in the Bible. The idea of the rapture is, and we will talk about that, but rapture is not. Um, it is when Jesus returns, the rapture, though, is when Jesus returns to the earth for his second coming to gather together his people and overtake the enemy. I remember the first time that I heard about this idea of the rapture. And uh, there's things that you learn about life and you lose sleep over them. And I remember growing up and learning about demons and like, oh my gosh, there's demons and you don't sleep for like three days because you're looking for demons in every shadow, right? And you mature in that and you lose sleep. Well, the first time that I learned about the rapture and kind of the tribulation that came, it was one of those weeks. Three straight days, five straight days, I thought about what the end might be and I lost sleep and then you find Christ in that and he gives you peace. But I remember... Um, the first time I heard about it, it uh, wasn't from Pastor Linden. Rather, it was from a mentor in my life. When this idea of the rapture and tribulation came up, it freaked me out because I was in high school. The next time my friends and I hung out with this person, we brought the subject back up because we had more questions. To be honest, I believe I remember exactly where I was and that's how impactful it was. We were in the mall, or we were at the mall at Fairfield Commons in Dick's parking lot. I remember, I remember asking the questions because it intrigued me. This epic battle and maybe being taken away. Esther's re-signing her, um, her, her waiver. <laughs> She walked out, thought about it, and then she's like, I'm going to re-sign. <laughs> Thanks for the consent. <laughs> so what I, what I remember about um, this, this mentor's rapture theology was this, was at the end of time, there will be a, the rise of the Antichrist. And the rise of the Antichrist will rule and reign for 42 months. And the first 42 months will be like, life is good. Probably thriving economy, um, happy people. And then there's just going to be a switch. And at the second 42 months, it's going to be hell on earth. And of course, naturally, you're happy about the first 42 months. But then the second 42 months, you're afraid of it. I don't want to be here during the hell on earth. Fortunately, though, from his perspective that he was teaching us, was that the church would be raptured out of this world right before the bad times came. So right before... So his perspective was he believes that we would be raptured, that we would be gathered unto Christ mid-tribulation. So you get happy about that, right? Just good times. And then, poof, we're gone. And um, 
yeah, poof, we're gone. And uh, everyone else is here to deal with themselves. So this is the idea of mid-tribulation, the idea of the rapture, right? So mid-tribulation would believe that there are two different kinds of tribulations. The first one is a natural, and it happens the first 42 months. So just because things are really good, thriving economy, whatever, life is good, it doesn't mean just kind of typical life circumstances. People will still get in car accidents. People will still get sick. So it's just a natural tribulation, which I believe that the world is experiencing right now. I believe just natural tribulation really hurts, right? People come after you, um, whatever else. So um, the second 42 months, though, they consider divine wrath. And now some of you may be mid-tribbers right now and you don't have this terminology, or some of you might be mid-tribbers right now and say, you don't have enough terminology, Joey. That's okay. Um, just cliff notes today. So the second 42 months would be considered divine wrath. And then the belief is we as believers will not face this tribulation because we are taken out of this world by rapture. So they use scriptures, the mid-tribbers would use scriptures like Romans 5, verse 9. Since we, now, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So what they're saying is, hey, we're going to be taken out. The last 42 months, God's wrath is going to come on the earth according to their perspective. That's when it's going to happen. And then we're going to be saved from God's wrath. Because the first 42 months is natural tribulation. The second 42 months is not going to be natural. It's going to be the enemy. It's going to be divine. And because of that, then what they use is they use Romans 5, 9, and they take it and say, this is a, a rapture scripture that points to us being gathered unto him because we uh, will be saved from his wrath. For me personally, I wrestle with, within the context of Romans, within the context of the aligning scriptures, I'm not sure that that's the case of what it's talking about, but we will get there here in a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, they also use. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So they bring that up as well, right? So again, my issue with these scriptures being used is within context, it sits better with my opinion that these are pointing to our salvation and not being saved from trials. In the book of Revelation, Jesus will pour his wrath out on his enemy and not his people. Amen? God does not pour his wrath out on his people. So I already believe, and we'll keep on getting there, I already believe that his people will be protected from his wrath. But another scripture that they use is what we mentioned several weeks ago, Revelation 3.10. We talked about this. and Yeah, so Revelation 3.10, I told you that I would bring it up again. Revelation 3.10, here it goes. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. 
So what's interesting about this is one of the reasons why I do not think that the churches, the seven churches, is talking about specific eras is this scripture here. And this also goes against, if you believe that the, tangents, but this is important. If, and I'm coaching myself to keep on going. If, if you believe that the seven churches is talking to seven different eras, then there's no way that you can believe in pre-trib or post, or pre-trib or mid-trib. Why? Because what was it? The, was this Philadelphia, I believe? This was the sixth church. So if, if this is being talked about as the sixth church, and then the sixth church is kept from the hour of trial, but then the seventh church is a different era, why didn't God rapture the, the seventh church? Are you guys tracking with that? Or I just, in my head, does, Mark gives me the thumbs up. So in my mind, the churches don't represent eras because the, seventh, the sixth church people claim that that is a rapture scripture, but then the seventh church is still left here. It doesn't make sense. That's where the Bible would contradict itself based upon your interpretation. I move on, though. In Revelation 3.10, John uses the same language as he does in John 17.15. There are two key words. In Revelation uh, 3, it's the word keep. But then in um, John 17, it's protect. So I believe that those are the same words here. And John 17, 15 says this, my prayer is that you take them, sorry, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So keep and protect here does not mean physical removal. This would mean that Jesus was promising to keep them from it while um, while still in it, right? So we see this in Exodus with the plagues. And what, what's important for us is the way we interpret the whole Bible, we have to use the whole Bible to interpret the whole Bible. Amen? Do you guys agree with that? We can't just take one sentence of the Bible or one paragraph or one chapter and just say, hey, God just decided to go haywire here. And we can interpret this however we want. So when interpreting the rapture, when interpreting the gathering unto him, we have to use the whole nature of God's character that we can see throughout the Bible. So when Revelation 3.10 says um, that he will keep them from the hour of trial, and then uh, John 17.15 says he will protect them from the evil one, we don't see him taking them away just like Exodus. Now, I believe using these scriptures for the sake of mid-trib, um, the rapture is a possible violation of other scriptures throughout the whole Bible. More to come on that. So that's kind of the short basis of mid-trib. Now there's pre-trib. And just knowing the congregation and having many conversations with many of you in here, here's where I think most of us would rest. There's a lot of pre-tribbers in here. There are um, fewer post-tribbers. And then there's just the people that are called the pan-tribbers, -trib -tri uh, right? 
the pan tribbers are everything's going to pan out. Right? So um, I will give my leaning of pre, post, and mid today. But more than anything, I'm a panner. So pre-trib. So pre-trib believers use a lot of the same scriptures as mid-trib. They just interpret them a little bit differently to see the tribulation coming a little bit sooner. Pre-trib believers would suggest that we are gathered unto him before tribulation. The rapture is what begins the seven-year tribulation here on earth, meaning they believe what happens next in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 22, we will not be here for. Sounds fun, doesn't it? I don't want to be here for that. Now, whether you have um, terminology for it or not, I'm going to share some more about what pre-tribbers would believe or where their belief system comes from. So pre-tribbers believe, uh, sorry, believers suggest that the book of Revelation doesn't use the term um, esclesia. Um, if I'm saying that right, I believe so. If I'm wrong, sorry. Esclesia. So in the original language, so esclesia would be the church. And what they're saying is pre-tribbers uh, would say, hey, look, it doesn't, the, the book of Revelation doesn't use the word church after Revelation chapter 4-1 until Revelation twenty two fifteen. So they say since the, um, the author, John, didn't use the word church in Revelation, it means that the church is no longer here. Praise God, right? No one? Praise God. We don't want to be, I don't want to be here. I don't. People, yeah, we don't want to be here. I might have just gave up where I lean. Uh, um, we don't want to be here. So, therefore, in their view, it's obvious the church isn't here. Yet, this view might be avoiding that the term saints, which the church is referred to often in the New Testament, is mentioned 13 other times in the book of Revelation. So if we're saying, hey, the church isn't used, the term church isn't used in the book of Revelation, so that means that they're not here, I feel like that's a shallow interpretation because saints, which refers to God's people and God's church, is used often. Now, pre-tribbers, whether you're a pre-tribber today or not, what you would believe or where the root of what you believe comes from is, or the people who maybe originated with this idea, they believe that there are two second comings of Jesus. So what they mean, or, or if it's not two second comings, they believe in a two-stage second coming. So the first second coming is the rapture. So Christ returns in the clouds to gather all his true believers together. And this is understood as Jesus' uh, secret coming. So he comes, and it's a secret coming. 
And this is what we know as the Left Behind series. Essentially, what ends up happening is you wake up and you are not found worthy enough and you are left behind. That movie ever scare you guys? I remember um, when Macy and I first got married within the first couple years, um, I woke up and it was really foggy this morning and uh, I had to go to early morning meeting and there were these cylinders of light going to the sky. And I'm like, it happened. <laughs> and I'm still here. What else could these cylinders be? And then I called Macy and she was still here. So I'm like, okay, it didn't happen. But what is this? What happened? And left behind um, has scared many people. It's like this, this idea of imminence, right? That Christ can return at any moment and we can be gathered unto him and just raptured up. So we can be cruising. I mean, like we could be, I can be cruising in the church van with 15 young people, 14, because Macy's in the passenger seat. And we're driving and they don't know Jesus yet. So what ends up happening is we're driving, listening to um, some worship leader, and then Jesus returns, secret coming, poof. Macy and I get raptured, our clothes are still there, and no one's driving the vehicle. These kids crash, they wreck, and it's a mess. There are people that believe that the rapture, or, yeah, the, the first coming, is that God will rapture his people up in a moment to gather unto him in the sky, and that's his first, second coming. Now, I use the, the word first, second coming very specifically because throughout uh, pre-trib's idea is what they say is this is a, the gathering unto him and the second coming are the two terms that they use, but they see them as two different events. So I'll just tell you, I wrestle with that a little bit. I wrestle with the idea that the Bible would say, here's a second coming, but here's a different second coming. So if I'm going to pick Mark Snyder up from the airport, I don't say I went and picked Mark Snyder up from the airport at 7 p.m. and then I'm going to pick him up at 11 p.m. Right? If I pick him up at 7 p.m., I pick him up and then that's, that's finished. So I wrestle with the idea of pre-trib having these, this two-stage second comings. Now, the second, um, yeah, so essentially... If the, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but if, if the left behind rapture happened, where Jesus just re returns in a moment and he poofs us all up there, right? What this would do is this would leave all the Jews and non-believers on earth alone without, um, yeah. This would leave all the Jews and non-believers on earth alone without any other believer to have Christ leading them. So he takes, he takes all the spirit-filled believers. Well, the blind can't lead the blind. Come on, somebody. So, so God's gonna, what, what God's going to say is, I'm going to take all the spirit-filled believers out of this earth during the most important time maybe in existence. 
doesn't make sense to me, and it doesn't mean that I'm right in that. Man's rationale does not trump God's word. Amen? But if, if this first coming unto him happens, then that means that there's we're, all the believers and people who are spirit-filled with power. The creator of the universe, we're all gone, and everyone else is here to fend for themselves. Therefore, how will evangelism or discipleship take place? The blind will be leading the blind if that happened. And then what, what they uh, see is the second, second coming, right? And the second, second coming is when Christ will return visibly to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom. So the first one is, is he secretly gathers us. The second one is, he will return, split the sky open. We will see him, everyone on earth will see it. And then the war in Armageddon will take place. But a pet peeve of mine is this, is why is it that some Christians focus more on um, being saved from tribulation than being saved from sin. There's some Christians that I talk to that talk more about being saved from tribulation than they talk about being saved from sin. See, in the West, we seem to think that tribulation isn't going on while hundreds of thousands of believers are facing it right now. Statistically speaking, someone right now was buried alive for the sake of Christ. Statistically speaking, someone's head was cut off right now for the sake of Christ. See, but in the West, we have this idea that tribulation is not going on. Many people face tribulation no matter where you stand on eight years ago you faced, or a little bit, 10 years ago when someone didn't, when, when your candidate didn't win the election, you were facing tribulation. And then when your candidate lost the last election, now you're facing tribulation, right? And that's the worst that it's been for us in America. There are people right now that are dying for their faith. So it's a pet peeve of mine when we focus more on tribulation than being saved from sin. There was a 20-year-old Islamic boy who found Christ. He repented of his sins, and he put his faith in him that he could inherit eternal life. And because of what God did in his life, he began to preach. And he preached the gospel to all of his Islamic friends and family members. Well, the community didn't like that. So you know what they ended up doing? They took him, and they burned him in acid. Do you ever think about your death? They took this boy who found Jesus and they burned him in acid. And guess what? He didn't die immediately. He actually lived for a few weeks. He died a slow death for the sake of Christ. Pre-tribbers think that we're not going to face persecution. While I would say this, there are people facing persecution around the world mightily right now. The Holocaust, persecution. Believers have been burned at the stake, buried alive, hung, heads cut off, distracted. Do you guys, I mean, like, we're distracted. Some of you are distracted this morning. I can see it. You're playing... Uh, 
or it's with friends right now, or Candy Crush. I can hear the noises. Some of us are distracted. But distracted, it used to be this, this horrible way to kill a person. They would take horses or they would take cows and they'd tie a rope to people's arms and legs. And what they would say is, take that cow and go that way. And they would distract everyone's limbs. And they would kill them that way. There's people who are being distracted. They'd be thrown in to fight animals with no weapons. They'd be fed to animals. These things are going on today. So I have a major question about this view of pre-tribulation. Because when this tribulation comes, will believers be buried alive worse? Will believers' heads be cut off worse? Why would God only spare the last generation of believers from tribulation? Because we need to allow the entire Bible to interpret a section of the Bible. Amen? So why would he do this? And who will, uh, who will there be to harm during tribulation if all the believers are gone? The enemy... Satan doesn't care to, I mean, he, he, he wants to destroy the world. But look, everyone's going to receive the mark of the beast. So that means because all the saints are gone, because the saints were raptured pre-trib, that means everyone else who is here, guess what? They're going to be worshiping the beast. They're going to receive the mark of, beast, the mark of the beast. So what kind of tribulation is going to be going on during this time? Everything's going to be easy. Because they are worshiping the beast. So who, who's, who's going to be left behind to harm? I don't know. Um, yeah. So much research suggests that the pre-trib rapture only came about in the early 1800s. From believers who received this knowledge by divine revelation and dictation. That scares me. There's a book that talks about the rapture originating by dictation and revelation. Scary. Um, there are zero, zilch, nada teachings about pre-trib or mid-trib rapture until after this time. So what that means is early believers believed a certain way and it wasn't pre or mid. What was it that they believed, right? It wasn't until 1830s. So that has to make us wonder why. So it meant that no one believed it. Early church pioneers have spoken out against pre and mid, like Luther and Wesley. Modern day church leaders like Corey Ten Boom, D.A. Carson, J. Barton Payne, F.F. Bruce, and George Eldon Ladd all speak out about the pre and mid tribulation. There's so much more that I could discuss, but maybe for a later time after you read the book for $13.
if you haven't gathered just probably based upon my current presentation, I lean and don't hold tightly to, I hold tightly to Jesus, I don't hold tightly to my interpretation here, I lean towards post-tribulation rapture of the church. One of the reasons why I believe that there's a post-tribulation rapture of the church, and there's many, but just the idea of, we, I think we can prove that the second coming and the gathering of, of, to him, of him is one event. But before we get there, post-tribulation believers believe that there is a biblical promise that God's people will face persecution, trials, and tribulation. Amen? There's a biblical promise of that. If you say that there's not, then I'll say that you're not reading the Bible. These believers are to do what, according to Scripture? Take heart. So John 16, take heart in this world you will face trials of many kinds. James 1, 2 through 4. Yeah, trials of many kinds. Um, and I was trying to shorten it up, right? 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. So take heart in this world. You will face tribulation and trials. You will face trials of many kinds and all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Actually, the word tribulation that's being used here is thalipsis. And it's used 45 times in the New Testament. Yet where most tribbers dif differentiate from pre and mid would be that they don't see a biblical theme in the Old Testament or the New Testament of God taking his people out of his wrath via form of rapture. When post-tribbers look at God protecting his people from his wrath, they do not interpret it as him rapturing them out. Rather, they see it as God protecting his people when he sends his wrath against the world. For example, allowing the Old Testament, so the whole Bible, to interpret the rapture. For example, Noah. Um, God was so tired of the wickedness in the world that he was done with it. He had enough. Any of y'all with kids ever had enough? He had enough. And he had so much frustration that uh, what did he do? He said he regretted even creating mankind. He was so frustrated and disappointed and brokenhearted. So what ends up happening? He was going to destroy the whole world that wasn't righteous in his sight. So according to Genesis 6, 8 through 11, Noah found favor in God's eyes. Noah was righteous and blameless among his people. He walked faithfully with God. So Noah is God's people here. So what happened is Noah built the ark, and what happened? He was saved. 
He wasn't caught up in the sky. We cannot say that Noah is an example of the rapture. Pre-trib and a mid-tribber say that what, what they see going on here is God kept Noah from his wrath, and, and, and the ark is a form of rapture. The ark is not a form of rapture, according to my opinion, because where was he raptured? He didn't gather unto Christ. What God did is God protected him. He guarded him. He took him out of his wrath because his wrath was coming to flood the earth. So God saw Noah as righteous, so he said, here's your protection. Hop on this big boat, and then when my wrath is done, you can inherit the earth. Amen? God protected Noah. God was preserving his people from his wrath. And then you have Lot. God is fed up with Sodom and Gomorrah. You find that in Genesis 18 and 19. Angels come to warn Lot after some bartering with Abraham and God. And these angels come to lead his family away from God's wrath. As they leave, what happens? God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers would say, this is a form of rapture. I don't see a form of rapture here. What I see is God protecting his people from his wrath. Come on, somebody. God didn't rapture them. He led them away. It's uh, like the call to believers in Revelation 18 to come out of Babylon. That's what was happening here with Lot. Revelation 18, 4 and 5 in the New King James Version. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So he's saying, hey, look, if, if you want to linger with the world, if you want to stay there, the wrath is coming. But I'm providing you to come out. I'm providing you a way out. And that's what God did with Noah. That's what God did with Lot. The list goes on. The Israelites and the ten plagues. God sends his wrath through these plagues that we read about a couple weeks ago, right? In the Bible reading plan. God sends his plagues. Did God rapture his people from the plagues? No. There was no rapture. So we're, again, we're interpreting the rapture with the whole Bible. What did God do? He protected his people from his wrath. And then you think even of the Passover. God said, hey, go in here. Put the blood over your doorstep. I will protect you from the wrath. I will protect you. I will protect you. It was, they were passed over. They weren't passed up to heaven. You see that? Passed over, not passed up to heaven. I mean, seriously, God's people were facing an antichrist. Pharaoh was an antichrist who was slave driving them and persecuting them and killing them. And yet God did not rapture them. Don't you think the Israelites of all people could have said, where's the rapture? Why don't you take us? The people of Israel, when it was destroyed, God didn't rapture them. He protected them. God has always protected his people from his wrath. 
Come on, somebody. That's good news. You and I who are grafted in him do not have to worry about God's wrath. God doesn't take his people away. He loves and protects them through it. That's the theme I see in the Bible. The theme that I see throughout the whole Bible is that God will allow us to endure stuff, but his wrath will not harm us, and he will protect us when his wrath comes. That's what I see. So what that means is God can protect you and I from tribulation, from his wrath, without rapturing us. So one author asks this question. Why would we think that at the end of the age, God would spare his people from the thalipsis, from the tribulation? Why the final generation alone? That would seem to violate a biblical pattern, would it not? And what about the way that Jesus prayed for his disciples? Could that be that he prays for us the same way too? He says this in John 17, 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. So we see John 17 here actually being what Jesus did or what God did in the Old Testament. God didn't take Noah out of the world. He protected Noah. God didn't take the Israelites out of the world. He protected them. God didn't take Lot out of the world. He protected him. So I'm starting to see that the Old Testament and the New Testament might be aligning pretty clearly when it comes to the rapture, when it comes to this idea of tribulation. This uh, author continues, that is hardly a picture of the pre-trib rapture of the church. A decisive Old Testament text that leads me to what I believe is the most decisive Old Testament text in our discussion, he says, is Isaiah 26, 21, 20 through 21. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself for a little while until his wrath has passed by. Where else have we seen that? Exodus. Right? The Passover. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the bloodshed on it. The earth will counsel its slain no longer. Conceal, sorry. Counsel. I'm Russian. I'm Russian. Wow. I need to start Russian. Conceal its slain no longer. At a time in the future when God's anger will be poured out on his earth, we are not promised escape. We are told to take refuge. We'll go in and wait a little while. Now, as for interpreting the New Testament for a post-trib rapture, and if you do have to go somewhere, you can listen to this later, but I am going to, um, I am going to take my time with the rest of this. It doesn't happen every Sunday, but... Um, yeah, you can listen to it later if you have to leave. What does the New Testament say about post-trib rapture? So Matthew 24 is one of the most famous 
end time scriptures. And every pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib like to use it, right? So what I want to do is I want to read to you Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this, did you hear that? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, immediately after, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what we see going on here, um, to me, makes post-trib pretty clear. Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So what happens immediately after the, this great tribulation? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. Now, I can already hear it. For pre-tribbers, what pre-tribbers would like to argue is that the elect here being talked about are the Jews. So what pre-tribbers would believe is, hey, look, God's people were taken up, and then now what God's doing is he's coming back after the tribulation to bring up his Jews. Now, to me, um, saying that the elect are the Jews here makes absolutely no sense to me. Absolutely. Um, in the most loving way, I say this to those who are pre-tribbers and cling to this being the elect. That's a lazy interpretation. Extremely lazy interpretation. If we simply allow the immediate scripture to interpret itself, we say that this isn't talking about the Jews as the elect. If we just use the immediate interpretation. So Matthew uh, 22, sorry, 24, 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for um, the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. So are we saying that maybe God would shorten the last days for the Jews? Is that the way that pre-tribbers would interpret? That God's shortening the days for the Jews. But there's more. Because I don't think that he was shortening the days for the Jews. Because Jews, generally speaking, are what? They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's not shortening the days for people that don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So if we just use the immediate context, we, we need to understand here that the um, elect are not the Jews, but we'll continue. 24, 24. For false, false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
So the immediate context is saying, hey, look, the elect could be deceived, but what do we know about Jews? Jews are already deceived. And how do we know that Jews are already deceived? Jews believe that Jesus is not the Messiah. So if I were to tell you that Jesus is not the Messiah, what would you tell me? I am, I'm deceived. So if we just allow the immediate context of Matthew 24 to interpret who the elect are, we understand that Jesus is not going to say, hey, look, um, they, they will gather together his elect from the fort. Yep, um, there it is. For the sake of Christ and for false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. The elect here, if it's the Jews, are already deceived. I think we can agree that Jews already are far off. Why would Jesus say that false prophets will rise up to deceive the Jews, the elect, when the Jews are already deceived? He wouldn't, and I would dare to say he didn't. So I'll keep on um, presenting my apologetics Therefore, the immediate context reveals that the elect that is being talked about here is not the Jews. So who are they? The elect in the New Testament. We're going to allow the Bible to interpret, the surrounding context to interpret it. The elect in the Old Testament is Israel. We understand that. Yet the elect in the New Testament is the church. In Greek, this is Strong's G, 1588. Ekletos is the word. And what this means is to obtain salvation through Christ. So the word here, elect, is Strong's G, 1588, Ekletos. Those who have received salvation through Christ. It's used 16 other times in the New Testament. The word elect is also chosen, or similar to the word chosen in the New Testament. And it appears 24 times in 23 verses. And most references are made concerning the church, those justified by faith in Jesus being the chosen. So to say that the elect only refers to Israel would overlook scripture that clearly refers to the church as the elect as well. I want a pre-tribulation. And actually, if you ask me, I just want life to be perfect and this never even need a tribulation. But as I study the scriptures and I was originally taught mid-tribulation. So when I was taught that by someone that you trust, you believe it. Because you believe it because you trust them and it sounds good. But the elect here are not the Jews. It's God's people. One author says this. We know that those who are in the rapture are saved according to their faith in Jesus Christ. Majority of the Jews deny that Jesus was the Messiah. And for those who accept Jesus and obey the gospel, they would then become part of the body of Christ. We learn in Zechariah that Israel overall is saved after the Lord returns. So the elect that is gathered in Matthew 24 are not the physical people of God, the Jews, but rather the body of Christ. 
commonly referred to as the church. Even Paul himself refers to the church as God's elect. 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So is he enduring this for the Jews, or is he enduring this for God's people? Paul is enduring these things for God's people. Now back to Matthew 24. Jesus will share when we are raptured. I don't know if you're agreeing with what I'm presenting today, and that's okay, but Jesus will share when we are raptured. Verse 29, when are we raptured? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. And then verse 41, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of the earth, from one end of heaven to another. So when do I believe that the church is raptured? Immediately after the tribulation. God will gather his elect. So God gathers his elect after tribulation. And Paul himself doesn't preach pre or mid tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered to him, so Paul's saying concerning the end, concerning Jesus' return and us being the word that we put in there, raptured, gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word or mouth or by letter, asserting that that day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, so Paul is referencing when this day will come. You're with me, right? You're tracking or are we sleeping? Sounds like we're sleeping. Macy's listening and that's good. Because, you know why? Because we need thick skin. We need thick skin to persevere. So don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day may not come until the rebellion occurs and a man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. First, if Paul was a pre-tribber, why did he warn his believers to not be deceived? Paul is writing a letter to those, or the Thessalonian church, right? Thessalonica. So he's writing believers, he's writing you and I a warning. Hey, look, don't be deceived. So why would he write and warn believers in verse 3 to not be deceived? Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, 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 until rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. If Paul was pre-trib, he would have said, saints, don't worry, you will be taken out when the rapture comes. 
if Paul believed in the gathering together as a pre-trib event, I believe that would have been his words. He didn't say that, though. What he said was, hey, keep watch. Keep watch. Stay on guard. Don't be deceived. Don't think that it's happened. Paul continues concerning Christ's return and us being gathered unto him. He said, don't be alarmed by these people saying that Jesus has returned already. Don't be deceived in any way. And we're probably within 10, 15 minutes. So he said, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed by these people saying Jesus has returned already. Don't be deceived in any way because, 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 because that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. That day is the day of his return and the rapture. And it will not come until when? Until the rebellion and the Antichrist is revealed. So what I believe is the church that's here will see the Antichrist and the rebellion. And I know somewhat um, where I could, pre-trippers, mid-trippers, they believe in imminence and they also are like, well, the day or the hour is not known. I'm not suggesting that either. But it doesn't mean that we can't know. Uh, if, if you know that, the, what, if the wind is blowing from the west, according to scripture, right? If the wind is blowing from the west, you know that a storm is coming in, right? If it's hot, you know that a storm's brewing. And this is clearly a paraphrase, but you all know the scripture. And he says, likewise, when these things take place, you'll know that the end is near. So when we begin to see these things, we know that the end is near, though we don't know the exact day. That's right. So Paul is telling other believers that the end isn't coming until the rebellion and the Antichrist. So Paul is warning the church not be deceived about Christ's return. And then he gave them a marker for when it will be. We should pay attention to his marker. The mark was the rebellion and the Antichrist. Nothing in this scripture says that we will be taken out before tribulation. And that's Paul's warning. Um, next point. The Antichrist makes war with the saints. Revelation 13, 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints. Who? This is in the book of Revelation. Allegedly, allegedly, the saints were raptured out. The church was raptured out before chapter 6 or at the beginning of chapter 6 when the tribulation takes place. Now, this is for, uh, chapter 17 after whatever I said, 13, 12, 10. It was after 6. So what ends up happening is it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And the authority was given over to over. And the authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So, where did these saints come from? These saints that the Antichrist is making war with, where did they come from? Because in pre-trib, we were, all, were already gone. So, the, the saints were allegedly taken. So, did evangelism, did, did the lawless just one day decide to become believers? No, the blind can't lead the blind. So 
Who was being discipled? Who was evangelizing? One might say that after the rapture, people came to Christ. But that's taking scripture and then that's adding a whole lot of assumption and man's rationale to it. And we can't trump God's word with man's rationale ever. So Jesus continues to issue a warning up to Armageddon. Everyone believes that Jesus will come as a thief at the rapture. I believe that as a someone who leans towards post-trib. Mid-tribbers believe that. Pre-tribbers believe that. Everyone believes that Jesus will come as a thief. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10. But one scripture that I'll mention is this, is Revelation 16, 15. Look, I come like a thief. A thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. And then the following verse, the seventh bowl is poured out. Why does Jesus give us a warning that he's coming like a thief all the way up to Armageddon if he has already taken us out like a thief seven years before? Does that make sense? Or am I just, you have to go back and listen to it. What's happening here is Jesus is warning them Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, ready in righteousness. We're prepared because imminence can happen. He can return at any moment. So we're ready. We're waiting. We're pursuing him. We're loving him. We're caring about him. So he's warning the church, be ready because I can return. But then right after that, Armageddon takes place. Revelation um, yeah, and, and, and I could talk about that longer, but why is he giving that warning all the way up to the battle of where he overtakes the earth? Revelation 20, 4 through 6. I saw thrones on which seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were in, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of their word of God. And Joel, you can come on up. I've asked Joel to read something. You can just probably sit on the piano for a second or on the bench. Don't sit on the piano. I mean, you can, but probably inappropriate for church. Um, so one author says this. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, says that saints were killed during the mark of the beast period of the Great Tribulation. I would agree with that. This would be part of the first resurrection this conflicts with the pre-tribulation rapture theory. 
which states that the first resurrection happens before the mark of the beast. Um, the pre-tribulation rapture theory converts the rapture in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, into the second resurrection, while John takes great pain to tell us that it was the first. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, pre-tribbers believe in a two-stage return of Christ. And what John is doing here is he's going, taking great lengths to say, this is the first resurrection. He's going out of his way. There's not two in the way that pre-tribbers would suggest. In an attempt to avoid scripture break, uh, to avoid, yeah, scripture breakdown, those who hold to a pre-trib rapture have said in the past that there will be many first resurrections. This, of course, is absurd and wholly unnecessary. Also, it has been said that the rapture and the resurrection are not the same. The rapture is when the dead in Christ rise, and this is the very de definition of resurrection, isn't it? That's, that's the very definition of resurrection. Look, there's a lot more that we could discuss, right? And if you don't carry my view today, that's okay. If you have more discussion, 13 bucks, the first nine people get the book, and I'll have Macy bring them up here. Uh, not yet, though. She'll just grab them immediately after service. My conclusion is this, is allowing the whole Bible to interpret the Bible, I believe that we are to be prepared for hard times. Scripture even says, who do you think you are? Jesus suffered, and do you think that you're greater than him that you might not suffer? So for us to take a theory that came about in the 1800s, and maybe forcefully put our view on it and not allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, I think is dangerous. I hold loosely to this interpretation today, but I do think it's the right one, and that's why I spent most time on it. And what we have to be prepared for is this, is each day you and I have to be prepared for the return of Christ. And the return of Christ means this. What's keeping your heart beating right now? What's keeping someone or you going left of center later? What's keeping the breath in your lungs? So just because we may see the Antichrist or persecution doesn't mean that we shouldn't be ready right now. You and I are to be ready right now for the return of Christ. Yet the main reason why I want or I went this length today to talk about post-trib is I believe that post-trib is what we see in the Bible and has not been influenced by others. But I also share this because I see a theme of persecution throughout the whole Bible. And I do not want us or future generations, our kids and grandkids, to be misled by the hope of a rapture that never came and they lost faith because of hard times. So I've asked Jewel to read a letter. Yep, sorry. This is a letter written by Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch survivor of the Nazi concentration camps 
Her family had hidden Jews during the German occupation of Holland, and for this they had been captured and sent off. Corey was the only one of her family to come out alive, and she was just one of many Christians sent to concentration camps during World War II. Her life hung in the balance during an ordeal that went on for years, but God was with her. Her faith was preserved, and through those terrible times, she lived to testify all over the world and how God kept her in, through, and out of that time of tribulation. This letter was written by Corey when she was an old woman. It was written in 1974. Her words, The world is deathly ill. It is dying. The great physician has already signed the death certificate. Yet, there is still a great work for Christians to do. We are to be streams of living water, channels of mercy to those who are still in the world. It is possible for us to do this because we are overcomers. Christians are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives from heaven to this dying world. And because of our presence here, things will change. My sister Betsy and I were in the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück because we committed the crime of loving Jews. 700 of us from Holland, France, Russia, Poland, and Belgium were herded into a room built for 200. As far as I knew, Betsy and I were the only two representatives in that room. We may have been the Lord's only representatives in that place of hatred, yet because of our presence there, things changed. Jesus said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We too are to be overcomers, bringing the light of Jesus into a world filled with darkness and hate. Sometimes I get frightened as I read the Bible and as I look in this world and see all of the tribulation and persecution promised by the Bible coming true. Now I can tell you, though, if you too are afraid that I have just read the last pages and I can now come out shouting, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, for I have found where it is written that Jesus said, He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. This is the future and hope of this world. Not that the world will survive, but that we shall be overcomers in the midst of a dying world. Betsy and I in the concentration camp prayed that God would heal Betsy, who was so weak and sick. Yes, the Lord will heal me, Betsy said with confidence. She died the next day. And I could not understand it. They laid her thin body on the concrete floor, along with all the other corpses of the women who had died that day. It was hard for me to understand, to believe that God had a purpose for all this. Yet because of Betsy's death, today I am traveling all over the world telling people about Jesus. There are some among us teaching that there will be no tribulation, that the Christians will be able to escape all this. These are the false teachers that Jesus was warning us to expect in the latter days. Most of them had little knowledge of what is already happening, what is going on around the world. I have been in countries where the saints are already 
suffering terrible persecution. In China, the Christians were told, don't worry, before the tribulation comes, you will be translated, raptured. Then came a terrible persecution. Millions of Christians were tortured to death. Later, I heard a bishop in China say, sadly, we have failed. We should have made the people strong for persecution rather than telling them that Jesus would come first. Tell the people how to be strong in times of persecution, how to stand when the tribulation comes, to stand and not faint. I feel I have a divine mandate to go and tell the people of this world that it is possible to be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in training for the tribulation. But more than 60% of the body of Christ around the world has already entered into the tribulation. There's no way to escape it. We are next. Since I have already gone through prison for Jesus' sake, and since I met the bishop in China, now every time I read a good Bible text, I think, hey, I can use that in the time of the tribulation. Then I write it down and learn it by heart. When I was in the concentration camp, a camp where only 20% of the women came out alive, we tried to cheer each other up by saying, Nothing could be any worse than today. But we would find the next day was even worse. During this time, a Bible verse that I had committed to memory gave me great hope and joy. This is 1 Peter 3.14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, evil is spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. I found myself saying, hallelujah, because I am suffering, Jesus is glorified. In America, the churches sing, let the congregation escape tribulation. But in China and Africa, the tribulation has already arrived. This last year alone, more than 200,000 Christians were martyred in Africa. Now, things like this never make the newspapers because they cause bad political relations. But I know, I have been there. We need to think about that when we sit down in our nice houses with our nice clothes to eat our nice steak dinners. Many, many members of the body of Christ are being tortured to death at this very moment. Yet we continue right on as though we're all going to escape the tribulation. Several years ago, I was in Africa in a nation where a new government had come into power. The first night I was there, some of the Christians were commanded to come to the police station to register. When they arrived, they were arrested. And that same night, they were executed. The next day, the same thing happened with other Christians. The third day, it was the same. As the Christians in the district were being systematically murdered. The fourth day, I was asked to speak in a little church. The people came, but they were filled with fear and tension. All during the service, they were looking at each other, their eyes asking, will, will this one I'm sitting beside be the next one killed? Will, will I be the next? The room was hot and stuffy with insects that came through the screenless windows and swirled around the naked bulbs over the bare wooden benches. I told them a story out of my childhood. When I was a little girl, I said, I went to my father and I said, Daddy, I'm afraid that I'll never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, said my father, when you 
take a train trip to Amsterdam. When do I give you the money for the tickets? Three weeks before? No, Daddy. You give me the money for the ticket just before we get on the train. That is right, my father said. And so it is with God's strength. Our Father in heaven knows what we need. He will supply all our needs just in time. My African friends were nodding and smiling, and suddenly a spirit of joy descended upon that church, and the people began singing, In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Later that week, half the congregation of that church was executed. I heard later that the other half was killed some months later. But I must tell you something. I was so happy that the Lord used me to encourage these people. For unlike many of their leaders, I had the word of God. I had been to the Bible and discovered that Jesus said, what Jesus said, that he had not only overcome the world, but to all those who remained faithful to the end, he would give the crown of life. How can we get ready for the persecution? First, we need to feed on the word of God. Digest it. Make it a part of our being. This will mean disciplined Bible study each day as we not only memorize long passages of Scripture, but to put the principles to work in our lives. Next, we need to develop a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Not just the Jesus of yesterday, the Jesus of history, but the life-changing Jesus of today who is still alive and sitting at the right hand of God. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is no optional command of the Bible. It is absolutely necessary. So those earthly disciples could never have stood up under the persecution of the Jews and the Romans had they not waited for Pentecost. Each of us needs our own personal Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We will never be able to stand in the tribulation without it. In the coming persecution, we must be ready to help each other and encourage each other. But we must not wait until the tribulation comes before starting. The fruit of the Spirit should be the dominant force of every Christian's life. Many are fearful of the coming tribulation. They want to run. I, too, am a little bit afraid when I think that after all my 80 years, including the horrible Nazi concentration camp, that I might have to go through more tribulation. But then I read the Bible, and I am glad. When I am weak, then I shall be strong. The Bible says, Betsy and I were pioneers for the Lord. We were so weak, but we got power because the Holy Spirit was on us. That mighty inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit helped us through. No, you will not be strong in yourself when the tribulation comes. Rather, you will be strong in the power of him who will not forsake you. For 76 years I have known the Lord Jesus, and not once has he ever let me down or left me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him, Job 13, 15. For I know that to all who overcome, he shall give the crown of life. Hallelujah. Amen. I wanted to be kind to you guys, because if I read that, we'd be here till two. So I assumed I'd call Jewel up. I want to thank you guys for being patient enough to sit here until 1235. 
I mean that. Baby revival is happening at Mechanicsburg Christian Fellowship. I hope so. So, look, when I self-reflect, I think it can be really easy to say, I want to be. It's easy for me to say that God loves me more than he did those in China. That God will protect me more than he did those in China or those around the world who are being persecuted. But often what ends up happening is we choose ourselves to be the hero and the ones that are going to be protected and safe. But when we look at scripture, I believe that there's a theme of persecution. And as a pastor and someone who um, cares about you guys, as a friend, as a family member, um, why would I not want to preach pre-trip? Look, we had a good worship service, things were going well, and then now we're leaving church thinking about suffering. That's not how you grow a church, by the world standards. But we're not interested in a lot of people being here. We're, we're interested in big people. People coming to know the depths of who God is. So yes, with fear and trembling, I do present that I believe that there's a post-trib rapture. And that we will face hard times as believers. And that today we should practice honoring him and giving gratitude to him and getting to know him. Was anyone challenged today? Father, in Jesus' name. I pray that as we are challenged, even myself, that um, we don't divide over it, that you bring alive your scriptures. And you do say, pray that we're not here during that time. So we pray that we're not here during Armageddon, you know, the end of times, Father. We pray that we're not here. Bless us today. In Jesus' name, amen.